thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. As sleep technology continues to advance, we are sometimes left to try to figure out which billing code to use. There are level two studies that have a G code that some facilities are able to successfully utilize, while some novel HSAT devices have created new metrics that don't always fit into a current CPT code. Navigating this can be tricky. How are CPT codes created? Who decides this? Can we change these? Here to help us understand how a CPT code is made is Dr. Vikas Jain. Dr. Jain is a board-certified sleep specialist and currently serves as an advisor to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. He is an adjunct clinical assistant professor at Stanford University's Sleep Medicine Program. He is also the medical director for the Polysomnographic Technology Program at Collin College. He serves on the AASM CPT Committee in an advisory role. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So let's start at the beginning so we can level set. What is a CPT code? Yeah, absolutely. So what is CPT? So what CPT stands for is current procedural terminology. So basically these are five digit, either numeric or alphanumeric codes, and they basically correspond uh, to procedures or services that are performed um, generally in the healthcare industry by physicians uh, and, and healthcare providers. Um, so the CPT has been around since 1966. Um, it was probably brought more into the kind of mainstay of medicine uh, with the advent of the HIPAA law mm-hmm. um, because the DHS in 2000 basically said, hey, moving forward, all physician services and procedures should be reported using CPT terminology. And so the entire database is maintained by the American Medical Association, um, and that's who hosts uh, the CPT meetings uh, where codes are added, deleted, and modified uh, year over year. Ah, so it's AMA, not um, CMS, for example. Correct. So how do CPT codes work with like ICD-10 codes? Correct. So what? So the difference is ICD is designed for diagnoses. So you know, somebody has a condition in our wheelhouse. You know, let's say it's obstructive sleep apnea. That's G four seven dot three three. Well, that's the actual diagnosis or the condition that you're evaluating, and then the procedure that we would use uh, for the assessment. Um, in this case, might be. A split night sleep study, you might order a 95811 or a PAT-based home sleep test might be a 95800. So we generally are using the CPT codes to define a service or a procedure in which physician work is involved. And then the ICD-10 code helps define what the di- what, what diagnosis it's being used for. Okay. So what goes into making a CPT code? Um, so... Quite a lot, uh, I would say. So <laughs> okay. you know, it's a uh, it's a pretty cumbersome process. Um, the entire process can take over two years in general. Uh, but generally, what happens is that these codes are maintained by the AMA, and so the AMA has two separate committees for these codes. One is the CPT, uh, which 
um, is where really where we're just talking about the code itself, right, and the procedure and the service, you know, that we're, that's being performed. Okay. Uh, and then there's a separate committee called the RUC, um, which we can get into, but that stands for uh, the Relative Value Scale Update Committee. So for those of us who work in a hospital, we're probably really aware of what are called our work RVUs, our, our rel- you know, RVU units. And so essentially, the RUC says, okay, there's this procedure that exists. Um, let's try to assign a value to it, how much work is involved, what's the cost of the equipment, et cetera. Mm. And so um, not only do they survey, um, you know, specialty survey their members to say, if you're using this procedure, you know, what are your costs? What is the time you spend, et cetera? And that all gets compiled. Uh, and then a value is assigned to that code. Uh, the RUC then submits a value recommendation to CMS Mm. And then CMS then has the authority to accept or amend that code value, and then the code gets published. So it's not that CMS creates the code, but CMS has a say in the value that these codes are ultimately desi- uh, assigned as well. Okay, so the the RUC talks to CMS, so it's AMA, and then where does a RUC live in all of this? Is that part of AMA? Correct. So the RUC is okay. also part of the MA. So there are three CPT committees that occur throughout the year and um, specialty societies have CPT advisors. So I'm one of the CPT advisors for the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. And then we also have RUC advisors that mm. attend the RUC meeting uh, to represent our specialty on the RUC side as well. So you mentioned that these have been around since the 60s. So I imagine they have evolved and changed over the years. Correct. I mean, one, I think back then these were primarily more um, for surgeries. Oh, sure. And then over the years, you know, then they've compiled more of a more comprehensive database that's designed to describe, should describe essentially all of the procedures that are done uh you know, within the scope of medicine in the United States. So how do you get a code in the first place? So you have to go to the CPT and request one. Okay. Um, and then, and so essentially um, that's called a code application. Um, and there are three different types of categories that these codes might fall in. There are category one codes, category two codes, and category three codes. Okay. Um, and essentially, you have to submit an application to the committee. It has to be a unique and well-defined procedure or service. And you have to prove that it's you know, clearly identifiable and distinguished from what already is in the code book. So sometimes, you know, if it's a one-off here or there, they're going to say, hey, you know, we don't see why this deserves its own code. There's already a code that describes this procedure it can't be a fragment of an existing procedure, and it has to be something that you know generally um, is done most of the time. Not oh, I need a code for this one percent of the time this weird thing happens. Uh-huh. Um, but it should be so. So it shouldn't be a means of reporting extraordinary circumstances, but more so. Hey, in in you know in a given specialty when a procedure or service is performed. This is typically what's involved, what's done, 
and we currently don't have a code that reflects it. Ah, uh, so the mainstream, the bread and butter. Correct. Okay, so then you were you were talking about the different categories. What do they all mean? What's category one? Right. So category one, I would define as what you said, sort of that bread and butter. Um, these are devices, drugs needed for the performance of a procedure. They have to have FDA clearance or approval. Uh, they have to be performed by a majority of physicians across the United States, and it has to be performed with the frequency that's consistent with the intended use. So essentially, if you have a common condition, then we should see that there's a high utilization of that procedure mm -hmm. for that common condition. Um, if you have a more rare condition, then likely we won't see as much use because there's just not the, as high a volume of patients. It also has to be consistent with current medical practice and guidelines, and you have to have literature, you know, a sufficient body of literature that backs up um, the clinical efficacy of that procedure or service. So category one is the common bread and butter ones. What about category two? So category two codes are generally codes that are usually more so used for tracking um, things that are, you know, sort of being done in healthcare. They're, they're sort of optional codes that could be used, but you could use them if you wanted to track more specifically items in a history or a physical or quality metrics, et cetera. So huh. sometimes those can be maybe more so like internal tracking mechanisms, or maybe if you're part of some sort of quality, um, you know, some of these quality metrics or programs, um, they might ask that you utilize some of those codes so they could track maybe how frequently you're doing a particular subsection of a, of oh, a thing. Oh, okay. Um, uh, but I would say like typically we don't use them as commonly in our everyday practice in regards to just coding uh, and billing because they're optional codes. And then category three codes are for emerging technology. So oh. these are typically where a lot of new codes live um, because it, you know, it has to be something that's being performed in humans. It can't just be, oh, we've tested this in animal models, but have yet to perform this in a human being. Uh, it has to be supported by at least one CPT or RUC advisor. And then you have to have some clinical evidence, but not as much. So you have to have at least, you know, some peer-reviewed literature that shows the potential clinical efficacy of the procedure. There has to be at least like an IRB-approved protocol um, or ongoing U.S. trial um, that involves the clinical utilization. But essentially, hey, this is something that's emerging. Um, we think that it has clinical efficacy. Um, it's not quite met that frequency consisted with the intended use to meet a cat to become a category one code. So a lot of these codes are sort of, they start off as category three codes with the hopes that one day they'll graduate and become a category one code. Ah, okay. So then what's a G code? And then G codes are typically codes um, that CMS has come up with. So it can be in particular situations where Either maybe CMS themselves is not happy with how certain codes are described in the CPT manual. And so they might say, you know what, for our, our members or our services, we're going to specify our own code that we want used. Um, and or, you know, sometimes if there's a need for something for CMS members uh, and a code doesn't exist, um, as mentioned, CPT could, could be a three-year process. Mm -hmm. um, CMS may then release G codes that where they say, hey, well, these codes can be used. 
uh, to define this service um, since sort of no codes currently exist to that could be used in CPT as well. Okay, so did we see some of that during COVID? Uh, yes, yeah, so I think we did see some of that. Um, I didn't personally use as in probably some of them you may have, but you know there were like telemedicine codes that mm -hmm. were developed um, uh, for use, uh, like the G two zero one two, I believe, is a is a G code for telemedicine services, um, etc. And so you know, so CMS sometimes may release some of these G codes from time to time to say, hey, you know, we'd like uh, you know we acknowledge that there's uh, maybe new technology or a new need or a new procedure that you know needs to be for, performed given the circumstances, um, and maybe you don't have something in your CPT manual. Here's a way for you to document or or bill for that um, within CMS. So then somebody has to bring it up to CMS so that they recognize it, or do these kind of flow CMS down? I believe they flow more so CMS down. Hmm. Interesting. So then. What about device companies? Do they have a role in getting these billing codes? So anyone can submit for a category one or a category three code. Um, but kind of as mentioned is, you know, you generally have to show um, that the procedure is being used. If it's a category three code, you have to have at least support from at least one CPT or RUC advisor. So mm. You know, there are device companies who sometimes will submit codes, but they generally fare much better when they have the support of their respective societies when submitting the code uh, versus trying to go rogue and getting a code submitted <laughs> without, you know, the support of, of, of their RUC and CPT advisors. So what about the AASM? Does the AASM have a role in determining billing codes? So we do because we have a seat at the table uh, with the AMA. So, ah. you know, so what the AMA says is that if a specialty has a sufficient volume of um, members, of AMA members from a particular specialty, then that specialty gets designated a certain number of seats um, at the, at the, at these meetings, you know, so the, so the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, uh, because we have enough of our members who are also AMA members, we have two CPT advisors and two RUC advisors who are at these meetings. So one is that I would say we, I mean, we've always had the ability to submit for codes, but it's nice when you have your own society members who are, um, you know, who have a seat at the table, because mm -hmm. then I think we can more readily um, you know, submit code change applications or fight against code change applications because it's a little more difficult to do so when you're not actually, when you don't actually have a seat at the table. Well, and we learned that, didn't we, a few years ago when we lost our seats? Correct. Right. Exactly. So, um, because, so talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Because, well, you know, and I think that goes to show um, some of the unintended consequences of sort of what an AMA membership means, right? I think there are plenty of us, I would even say myself included at one point in time that was like, why would I want to be yes. a member of the AMA, <laughs> right? I mean, what are they doing for me? Right. What, and it's expensive. Not, yeah. And, you know, yeah. this has nothing to do with my specialty. Right. Uh, I'm just going to be a member of my specialty society. Well, mm -hmm. ultimately what happened then is when enough people were not AMA members, they said, well, then you don't get to have CPT and RUC advisors anymore. So we could still attend the meeting, 
but it was much more difficult to then um, really be a part of the process or say, hey, well, you need society support, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to make sure that we're always, that we have a seat at the table because it, it gives us more opportunity to make sure that we're doing what's best for sleep medicine uh, versus, you know, maybe some of our counterparts might be doing what's best for chest or best for neurology mm -hmm. or best for psychiatry, et cetera. Um, and so, so that's where we made a real big push to our members. Hey, it's really important that you're an AMA member because that's what helps us uh, continue to serve you um, at the level of the AMA, you know, in terms of sleep medicine and making sure that our codes are protected, um, which ultimately means that hopefully our reimbursement is uh, protected as well. Yeah, I will admit that I did not really understand the importance of that until um, we lost our seats. And then all of a sudden I got it. <laughs> so right. I was a little bit slow to the party. Right. Absolutely. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about how a CPT code is made. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Couldn't attend Sleep 2023? Purchase on-demand access to the year's premier clinical sleep medicine and sleep and circadian science meeting. Sleep 2023 on-demand recordings will be accessible through April 30th, 2024. View the complete list of records and purchase today at sleepmeeting.org. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Fakas Jain about CPT codes. So let me ask you this then. Why can't I just get a code for oral appliance titrations, right? Like if you look at the verbiage, 95811 is specifically for PAP titration, but not oral appliance or Inspire. So why can't I use that code? Why do I have to bill for a diagnostic? Well, because you, well, so one is I would back up a little bit when I answer these types of questions, because I don't think that there's a blanket statement that's going to cover every physician that's a member in the United States. I think we all have local Mm -hmm. Macs that have different policies and procedures, even, you know, even the big healthcare companies like what Blue Cross does in Texas might be very different from what they do in North Dakota or South Dakota. Um, and so you want to be aware, like there's not an easy way to just say you can or you cannot. You mm -hmm. generally, um, you know, sounds like a cop-out answer, but you have to refer <laughs> to the policy. Um, but ultimately, I mean, when you're trying to use what code... Uh, you know, how do I use a code to define the service that I'm doing? Well, one is, well, what does that code say needs to happen, right? A 95811 says that you're initiating positive airway pressure therapy. Right. Well, you're not doing that when you put in an oral appliance. You're not doing that when you titrate an Inspire device. So we don't really, we can't really say to use that code because you're not actually doing that work. And it would be harder to show that you are. But a diagnostic code is showing that you're doing an attended study with a certain number of channels, uh, which you are doing, right? Maybe right. we're not capturing that additional work just yet of OAT titrations or Inspire titrations. Um, but it generally is probably a better code to use for that purpose because you're still documenting the work you're doing and you're not saying that you did work that you didn't do. Mm -hmm. 
So why can't we just get another code, like a specific one for Inspire or Oral Appliance or level two testing? Right. So this is one where being a member and voicing what you would like to see codes for or not can be helpful. Um, the other way that I would say that this is sort of described to me is think of, um, you could either think of all the CPT codes as one big pie. Okay. Right. And there are only so many ways you can slice the pie, but the government and the insurance companies are never going to give us a bigger pie to slice, right? So they ah. just say, here's all the money and you can slice it up how you want, right? So so some of the issues are one, we need to make sure that are we trying to submit for codes that would be unique and serve our members? Are they being performed with a very high frequency, right? Can we show that oral appliance titrations are being done at a very, very high volume, considering how common sleep apnea is. Mm. If we can't, we may not even be able to get a category one code approved for that purpose. Mm. Um, and then two, the risk is, is that we're currently paid what we're paid for the current, you know, attended sleep testing codes that we have. There's some risk that it could jeopardize, well, fine, you could have a fourth code and a fifth code and a sixth code for attended studies, but now, all of them are going to take up that same amount of room in terms of slicing the pie uh, that those, uh, you know, that the two codes have been taken up currently. Huh. And so we always have to sort of weigh, you know, would it be worthwhile to do that for our membership? You know, if there's some risk to reimbursement, I think we're always trying to keep that in mind as well, um, given that, you know, there could be some codes that are being utilized. And if they're you know, if they're being covered or being reimbursed, um, then maybe, you know, it's better to leave things the way they are. Like that's sort of the discussions that happen behind the scenes as we think through these things. Well, and I've heard that before, that if you challenge it, you kind of open up the whole category to potentially be re-examined. Uh, exactly. Because um, one, because there are two parts to codes, right? One is to actually get a code that defines the service, but then the other part is to have the RUC assign a value for mm. that service, right? If we go and say, hey, people have been using this other code for a while, uh, we think there's a better code that would be more specific, the RUC might go back and say, well, let's take a look at both codes, right? One, we need to assign a value for this new code, but maybe we need to take another look at this other code because... Uh. Uh, maybe it doesn't require as much work as you're saying because now you're doing more of that work with this other procedure. Ah. Uh, and so you have to, you know, so there's always some risk reward when, when we're talking about uh, category one codes and category three codes. And, and that's where it's not so simple as just saying, well, we don't have a code. Let's just get one made. Mm -hmm. um, we have to sort of think through this is going to be, a th and then even if it does get approved, there might be a two to three year lag in the actual implementation of when you can use the code. Um, so those, I would say, generally influence the decision making behind should we submit, should we not, is mm -hmm. now the right time or not, uh, right? Especially with all the changes we've seen in sleep medicine, even just from a in-lab to home testing shift. 
Right. Um, I think we're always trying to keep the membership in mind when we're making these decisions. You know, we we definitely want to do what's best for our members, but we're also keeping all of these other factors in mind when making those decisions. So you had taught me about how Inspire, um, how they had to go about their process to get billing codes. So how did they do this without opening up all of the sleep medicine codes? Uh, exactly. So, well, so one is what Inspire submitted were not codes regards to testing. They submitted codes in regards to, you know, nerve stimulator programming and insertion. So they had codes that were kind of in the surgery section of the CPT book in terms of the insertion and removal of this device. Um, and then they have codes that are in the, you know, nerve stimulator cranial nerve stimulator programming section of the CPT manual uh, in terms of programming and making adjustments to the programmer. So because those code sets live in different parts of the CPT manual, mm. it, you know, it seems like maybe I guess no one really had their eye on. It wasn't close enough to where I guess our codes live in the code book. Um, but but the way they started off was because they were an emerging technology is they started off as a category three code. Um, one of the big issues with category three codes is they're typically just used for tracking, mm. but generally they can't be used for reimbursement. Like most, like not across the board, category one codes typically because they're assigned a value, payers assign values to them as well. But since category three codes don't have a value yet, Mm. Um, because they don't have a RUC component, uh, then essentially, um, you know, they just sort of live in this category three world until they can meet the criteria for category one. So that's why there's always a big push at most CPT meetings. Many of these device companies, um, you know, specialty societies, everybody's trying to make sure their code stays as a category one code, mm. not a category three. But, you know, so so what Inspire did was, okay, we have an emerging technology, we're going to be category three. And basically that allowed for them to start tracking the utilization of Inspire programming, insertion, deletion. Mm. And then over the years, year over year, uh, then they started going back to the CPT committing and saying, hey, we think our code is a category one now. And then the CPT committee would say, well, not quite yet. We don't think the frequency is there yet. And then they would do it again and do it again and do it again. Huh. And eventually, um, you know, a few years ago, they were actually able to obtain category one status. And shortly thereafter is kind of where you started to see, okay, CMS is covering this now. Right. Payer, you know, commercial payers are starting to cover this now. Uh, and it's really getting that category one status that tends to really help drive that. Otherwise, it's then, um, you know, specific. Then you have to go, if you have a category three to each individual payer and try to see if on a case-by-case -case basis will they pay for it and what they will pay. Um, and it's not as standardized, essentially. And so even uh, Remedy, uh, which is our, you know, f um, you know for, for central sleep apnea, kind of had to go through that same process as well. Um, they had a little more of a difficult time mm -hmm. um, because they have a more rare condition. So it was even harder for them to show frequency um, just because there's not as high a volume of central sleep apnea patients as there are obstructive sleep apnea patients. That's exactly what I was wondering because the frequency of that disorder is, you know, significantly lower than OSA. So I bet they've had a longer timeline then. 
Uh, correct. But yeah, but then they they too were successful uh, in the past uh, few years in, in getting their code uh, to a category one status. So we should, you know, sort of see that, um, you know, implemented soon as well. So a lot of us are trying to figure out these novel HSAT devices, right? It seems like there's always a new one and there's always some new metric. <laughs> so right. how can we figure out what satisfies billing criteria? Because I think sometimes, right, there's sort of the sales part of it. And then there's the really looking at what the signals are and the algorithms and the outputs. How do we navigate all of this? Yeah. I mean, I think you, I think you have to navigate it from several fronts. Um, I mean, one is I think technology is always going to evolve faster than probably the CPT codes that define them do. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, you know, always may be newer technologies that exist, um, and 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 they may have a use. I think you always have to decide: do you want to utilize that in your practice? Um, and if it's not something that's currently reimbursed through insurance, you could always assign a you know a value to it and charge patients out of pocket, right? Huh. Um, you could also go uh, into the CPT manual and say, well, you know, what codes currently exist for my intended clinical use, right? If I'm planning to do a home uh, sleep apnea test, uh, what codes do I have? Okay, you know, 95800801806. What, do, you know, those codes currently say these are the things that need to be measured in order to be able to document this code. Uh, and then can you go back and see, does that device, one, have, you know, FDA clearance for the performance of actually that procedure, I would also caution some of our, you know, there are devices out there that are really FDA cleared for pre-screening mm-hmm. or screening, but not diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So doing some homework, you can look up, you know, how has the FDA defined their approval for a particular um, device or procedure? And then looking at what needs to be measured and then seeing if that device does those things. And if it does, then I think, you know, conceivably you should be able to use it um, for that purpose. Well, Uh, and and you're right. I mean, I think it makes us a little bit nervous with that three-year Medicare look back, right? And then sort of changing guidance from different payers like the Palmetto GBA had released guidance saying that they won't pay for derived signals and we can only use measured signals. And so that kind of um, became problematic. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to some degree, though, there's a log of when these policies change and from what date, mm-hmm. you know, the yes. change takes place, right? So I don't, I wouldn't say, I, I guess I would say from my standpoint, not that I've ever been audited by Medicare yet, <laughs> uh, but, um, but I would say, you know, if I did things the way they wanted me to do them at the time that that was the way things were done, then I don't see how someone can turn around and say, you know, then, then I think that you have documentation that shows that that's the case. Yeah. I think when policies change, then we have to change with them. And sometimes that's for good. And sometimes that's not so much, right? I mean, I think with the recent Palmetto change that you're talking about, um, certainly you know, using measured signals instead of derived signals means it's going to change some of the technology you have to use for CMS members. Right. Um, but they also said you have to be a board certified sleep medicine specialist to do sleep testing. You can't just be Joe Schmo uh, anymore. Um, 
So maybe that's a win as well with that change in the policy. Well, and I think you've hit on something really important is that we have to just continually be aware and sort of vigilant about about learning about these things. And I think part of that comes from collaboration with our colleagues. You know, part of it is sort of reaching out through the Engage platform or like you mentioned earlier, that it's okay for membership to reach out to the ASM with billing concerns or questions or, hey, I think we need a billing code for you know this new device. Absolutely. Uh, it's very, very helpful when members do that. Like the ASM has had a lot of wins behind the scenes for members with various payers. You know, sometimes we've gotten you know, commercial payers to take a look at their policies, change their policies, et cetera. And we can do that when you let us know, right? Or when members call up the ASM and say, hey, this isn't right, or this is what this payer is doing to me. And here are examples of how they've done that. Um, that's much more helpful and gives us much more ammunition to, to you know, fight on your behalf than standing up at the national sleep meeting and saying, you know, X, Y, and Z, but then, you know, you don't have as much that we can do about like a, a grievance, I suppose, right? right. Like expressed in that setting. Um, <laughs> well, so, and it becomes more actionable, right? Like I, I hear yeah. that frequently of why can't the ASM just have something on the website telling me what I can bill and what I can't bill. And what I'm hearing from you is there's just so much heterogeneity in coverage correct. with regions I mean, I and payers. And, I don't think that any I think if anybody gets up in front of an audience and tells you what and how to bill across mm -hmm. the board, I would not listen to that person. <laughs> you know, like I would be very careful about implementing things in that way, right? I mean, I think there are many opportunities to bill for the things that people present, but it's not sort of across the board. You have to make sure that you're setting up your clinic in a way where you're actually performing the procedure or performing them in a way that allows for you to build that code, um, which could be very different across different practices. So, um, so you know, so so that's where it's like we're trying to give you information about hey, here are codes that could be used. Um, here are things you could think about. Um, you know, if you're not using these codes, should you or might I want to? And then if I do want to, what do I need to put into place uh, to utilize them? You know, right. I don't think we hear enough about the wins. Right. You know, I think there are actually a lot of wins that we just never know. Um, so your point is, is very well taken. Is there an appropriate venue? Like how should members reach out to the ASM with concerns about, you know, billing and coding? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole billing and coding division of the AASM, um, and there's multiple subcommittees, I would say, that sort of make um, up that division in terms of advocacy and billing and coding, and we have a CPT committee, and then we have CPT advisors that are advisors to the CPT committee. Uh, and so that's where, you know, just providing feedback, I think, if you feel like there's not as much education, uh, you know, in regards to this topic, letting us know, we can always come up with more opportunities to educate the membership about CPT codes or procedure codes or different things to think about when you're going to implement those codes that, you know, again, I'm not going to have a way to tell you exactly how to do it, right? Um, but we can give you guidance to think about in terms of a structure around how you might think about utilizing it. If you have payers that you found are giving you a lot of grief in your particular region of the country, knowing about that helps us 
you know, reach out to those specific payers and say, hey, you know, we're getting a lot of feedback from our membership about X, Y, and Z. And, and at least the ASM can go to bat for you uh, and see, you know, if there's opportunity for us to make a difference there as well from a society level. You know, I had actually kind of forgotten about that. We, um, a few years ago, I started reading studies in South Dakota. So I'm located in North Dakota, but unfortunately one of our colleagues had passed away. And so I was reading studies to sort of fill that void. And for a certain payer, they were still using that old apnea rule where you couldn't split unless they had an apnea index of 30. And I just remember being so stunned reading these studies that I thought should have been split night studies that were not <laughs> because because of this rule. And I remember reaching out and getting a letter um, that was sent from the ASM to the whichever payer it was. So I'd forgotten about that till you said that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that's why it can be a little bit more difficult. Uh, well, you know, that's why it can be frustrating too, on, even I would say on the coding and billing side, because there are so many different policies and different ways different payers want us to do things. Right. It's like, how can we ever be consistent when everybody wants us to do things slightly different than the other, than the other one, yeah, right? Yeah, that's so, fair. That's yeah. fair. So what do you think members can do to support the RUC and CPT committees? Uh, I mean, one biggest thing is become an AMA member. Um, you know, uh, again, that just really helps solidify our seats um, at these meetings so that we can serve you uh, and serve our membership's needs. Um, so that's really, really important uh, to do that. Uh, two, um, like I said, I mean, just reaching out to the ASM. I think the more we can hear from the membership, it really helps us decide where should we focus some efforts either on revision of codes? Do we need new codes in sleep medicine for certain things that we're still, you know, that we still don't have codes for? You know, things that come to my mind sometimes are, you know, melatonin testing or, right. um, you know, other sort of novel, like you said, there's some novel, you know, sleep testing devices that are starting to come about and, you know, how are we going to be utilizing those and and capturing the use of them, do we have a means of doing that? And so uh, we are looking at those types of things to see when uh, and where it would be appropriate, you know, to potentially submit applications. Well, and probably be involved, right? There's a ton of volunteer Correct. opportunities and, you know, be involved. This is our society, right? This is our organization. Absolutely. I mean, I think the best opportunity we have to help our field is to get involved. Um, that's why I like being involved uh, with the American Academy of Sleep Medicine personally, because it's given me an avenue to really um, try to make a difference with the opinions that I have, right, in molding what happens in our field, instead of just saying, I'm going to just stand around and watch what happens and be upset or about it or, you know, <laughs> complain, uh, either yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I think it's okay to, I think complaining is good too, because yep. it helps us kind of hear, you know, these are the pain points that we're dealing with. And, um, you know, as a, private practice doc. I have pain points I deal with in private yep. practice as well. Um, and so I always think about those things. As ac our academic docs probably have a different set of pain points that they have to deal with. Uh, and so we're trying to keep all of that in mind, making sure, you know, are we doing what's best for sleep physicians? Are we doing what's best for sleep centers uh, as well across the United States? Well, and I think your point is well taken, right? That complaining or at least 
it, that's sort of a sort of pejorative, right? But at least right. bringing it to someone's attention. Um, so the things that I deal with in rural, you know, in, in North Dakota are very different than somebody in academia. Um, and just that recognition that, you know, that opinion, that voice is part of the tapestry of our field and it's still important. Right. Yeah, and, and it took me a really, really long time to <laughs> to get that. And it's not all about drinking the Kool-Aid. It's about recognizing that, hey, you know, this is our society. It's and, and I mean, and, and we're also so, sort of represented, right, our field of sleep by chest and AAN and ATS and stuff like that. But, you know, whatever your organization of choice is, it's OK to be vocal and to be involved. And um, and yeah, if you raise an issue also be willing to think about a solution because it's easy to figure out, you know, the problem. Um, what's your opinion on how we should go about to resolve this? I think that's valuable. Oh, in terms of like garnering more feedback? Well, and trying to figure out like, okay, so this is a problem, right? What do you think is, an, you're in the depth of it, right? Like, what do you think is an appropriate way to solve it? Because you're on the inside versus somebody yeah, on the outside. Well, I, mean, I think that these are the discussions that we have, um, in terms of my role, right? I mean, I would say again, like these go anywhere from committee level. There are advisors that give their opinion. There's a whole board at the American Academy of Sleep Medicine um, that's sort of then guiding, you know, taking into account all of these opinions and making decisions uh, about them as well. Um, and so, you know, one is just, again, the more you can voice the things you're happy about, um, the things you need more information about, the pain points you're having helps us really focus in on, you know, maybe these should be the areas that the ASM may want to focus on in a particular right. quarter or in a particular year. Um, and then especially on the CPT and RUC side, I would say, you know, if there's particular procedures, et cetera, that um, the membership really feels like we need, then I think expressing that is very helpful because then again, even from my standpoint, it's not just me as a CPT advisor saying, I think we need this code. And the board is saying, well, nobody else cares, Vic, <laughs> right? Um, it's like, no, actually, there's a good portion of the membership that, right. like, that wants this, right? And then uh, and then we're saying, okay, well, then that's what we're here for. I mean, I'm, I don't think I'm on the ASM to serve myself. I'm here to sort of serve the membership. Um, and hopefully we're doing what's, you know, what's right uh, for our field. So we've we've talked a lot about adding codes. So do you have to be in the field to submit a code in that field? So you don't. Huh. Um, so you, you know, any society or any again, company can submit a code as long as it's a unique code that defines a service, right? Um and so part of our my role as a CPT advisor is not only to be there to help submit codes when we need them. Um, but it's also to keep an eye on our existing code set family and also codes that other societies present, um, both to see, could there be some utilization of this code within sleep medicine? Um, huh. For example, think remote patient monitoring. It's not specific for sleep, but it's more broad. Um, but it's like, hey, there could be uh, some utilization of this, or hey, with the wording of how it's being presented, if that wording were, were to be slightly changed, maybe it pr provides an opportunity for us to utilize it, right? Huh. Um, so, for example, even with digital therapeutics, uh, there are companies that um, more recently had submitted codes for uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, yes. but for things like 
um, substance use disorders, et cetera, right? And we were making a big push. Oh, hey, that's something that, you know, we utilize in sleep medicine. Can we make sure we have a seat uh, in those meetings? We'd like to, you know, make sure that we make sure the language is broad enough that it could potentially offer some opportunity for our membership as well. Um, you know, so we're, we're constantly keeping an eye on the entire code set family, okay. not even just specifically codes that like have the word, I guess, sleep in them. So do you ever remove codes? Uh, so we have the ability to submit for the removal of codes. Um, generally, I would say that's either done when just the code isn't being utilized at all anymore. Okay. Or it could be, you know, conceivably, maybe there was some procedure that's now outdated and there's a newer procedure that's taken its place that's different from the old one. I don't know. Like, I'm like just a hypothetical example would be there's some device that gets surgically implanted in a person and maybe it involved two steps before and now you can do that in one step or something, oh, okay. you know, like, and okay. nobody does the two-step procedure anymore. Like, like why does it even exist anymore? So, so sometimes some societies might say, Hey, we're going to get rid of this old code and replace it with a new code. Sometimes societies will say, we're going to delete uh, or revise our entire code set family. So we're going to say, let's get rid of, let's remove these certain codes and in its place, here are these new codes that we're submitting for review to the CPT committee. So if you're if you're submitting sort of a proposal for a new code, does it open up sort of a limited family set or does it open up like all the sleep medicine codes? It is like, there's no way to know uh, <gasps> until the AMA decides. Wow, okay. Yeah. Okay, so it can't be as cavalier. <laughs> well, Unintended so you, consequences. So you could be, but you want to keep in mind that there's potential for that, right? Mm. And so then it becomes, you know, what's, uh, again, I think what you're always weighing is what's the potential upside uh, and what's the downside? And does the upside significantly outweigh maybe that potential downside? I think if there's not a significant enough upside, then we're a little more careful because we don't want the unintended consequences to hurt our membership as well, right? By by being so cavalier. Yep. Well, and you're looking at it for what serves the membership overall, not a select group. Correct. Yeah. Right. Yep. Like like would the majority of our membership benefit from the implementation of adding, deleting, modifying a code? So any final thoughts? Uh, just overall, you know, I know it's a cumbersome process. Uh, hopefully this provides some insight into kind of what goes into the making of CPT and why there's so much thought and, and also why so much time evolves around getting <laughs> codes. Um, it's not something that we can generally do in a week. Um, but, you know, we are doing our best um, to look ahead, look at the codes that we're going to need in the future and seeing what we can do to make sure that we're prepared for that um, for the membership um, so that we are all, you know, capturing the work that we're doing and get, getting reimbursed for the work that we're doing. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and helping us better understand what goes into CPT codes in the RUC committee. Absolutely. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. 
And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well. <laughs>